0: The United States Treasury is engaged in a never-ending cat-and-mouse game, trying to foil counterfeiters. When a nation relies on printed currency instead of hard currency like gold, it technically opens the door to anyone with a sophisticated enough printer to literally make their own money. But of course, government is not going to make it that easy. It may be impossible to stop all counterfeiters, but the government's going to make it as hard as possible, and they do so by designing security features right into the currency. In about every decade, the $100 bill is redesigned and given features that the average counterfeiter cannot reproduce. This may not stop counterfeits from entering circulation, but makes it a lot easier to spot them because they're going to lack the distinguishing features of the real thing. And conversely, you can tell you have the real thing by finding these distinctive marks. So what are the, some of the tests or distinguishing marks found in a real $100 bill? By way of illustration, let me give you a few. This applies to bills printed after 2009. First, you can feel Franklin's shoulder. The $100 bill is printed with a slight texture on Franklin's shoulder, which you can feel when you rub your fingers across. Second, check for color-changing ink. There's a large copper inkwell left of the serial number, and if you look at it from different uh, angles, the bells inside will change from copper to green because of the color-changing ink. And then third, there's a blue security ribbon to the right of Franklin's portrait, and it's printed in 3D. So as you move it back and forth, you see tiny little bells moving. There are many more, about over a dozen security features. They're already quite ingenious. If you were to sell something at a yard sale, someone paid you with $100, you would want to know, is this real or counterfeit? Well, now you can test that $100 bill with these distinguishing marks and know if you have the real thing or not. And by these tests, you can gain a measure of assurance. Now, I bring up this illustration, hopefully obviously, because it provides a useful bridge of understanding with our subject this morning, which is the assurance of salvation. How can you tell if you have real or counterfeit faith? I hope you know that salvation itself is based on faith alone. We're not saved by our works, but by Christ's finished work. He paid the penalty for our sin. He, he died. He rose for us. Only through him can we be forgiven and reconciled to God by grace, through faith in Christ alone. We receive all the benefits of his work, i.e. salvation. All right, so salvation comes to us by faith alone. What about the assurance of salvation? What is assurance? Assurance is the knowledge that you have been saved, that you have received his work. You have. It all applies to you. How do you gain this knowledge? Well, the starting point of, point of assurance is likewise faith. We're saved by faith, and fundamentally, we are assured by faith. The bottom line is God promises salvation to those who believe. So, my first question, do you believe? Romans ten nine? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or as Jesus says in John six forty seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So, do you believe? Do you believe in your heart? Do you confess with your mouth? There's nothing, nothing more sure than God and his word, his promises. So, as you cling to these promises by faith, you can be assured of your salvation. Now, that being said, when discussing assurance, some people will, will stop right here. Assurance is just a matter of faith. Just trust God. Take him at his word End of story. And there is certainly some truth to that, but here's why that approach is short-sighted. When it comes to assurance, God is not in question. His word, his promises, his ability to save, none of that is in question. We can say that God's promises are objectively true, but the thing is with assurance, it is by definition subjective. You're wondering, do those promises apply to me? And it's not as simple as asking, Do you believe in Jesus? Because scripture reveals there's such a thing as a false faith. And that really is the kicker. Faith is unseen. It's a reality that lives in our heart. So how do you know if if you really have it in there? There are plenty of people who mistakenly believe they do when they don't. They have a type of faith where they confess, they say all the right things, yet they're not born again. Such people may even gain total assurance of their salvation, but be totally wrong. Their faith is counterfeit, which means their assurance is counterfeit. And many people like this won't learn better until the day of judgment. We were exposed to the the sobering reality of false faith and false assurance in our primary text from a couple weeks ago in Matthew chapter 7, as we're currently going through the gospel of Matthew. But in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, I'm not going to exposit those verses again. We did that in detail two weeks ago. But this clearly tells us of this group of people who claim to be believers. They confessed Jesus as Lord. They thought they had this thing called faith, but they didn't. They were, in reality, false believers with a false assurance. And they're not the only ones. Scripture is replete with such examples. King Saul, Judas, Demas. The Pharisees, Paul before his conversion, and scripture frequently exposes the reality of false conversion and therefore false assurance. This is just like a worst case scenario for someone to be totally convinced that they've been reconciled to God, they're saved when they're not, they're still lost and cut off and they arrive before the Lord on the last day, expecting to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. I mean, we, we all would shudder at the thought. But you're not meant to live in fear like this. You, you can and should have real assurance, which is why we're called in Scripture to examine ourselves lest we be deceived. We've repeated this command a couple times. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, tells us, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. How do you do that? Well, last week we saw the negative side of that examination by looking at the means of false assurance. How do people fool themselves? What do they wrongly base their assurance on? That was all last week. This week, though, we've returned for one more message before we carry on in Matthew. And today I want to provide you the positive side of that evaluation. What are now the positive means of assurance? How do you build true assurance? We can clarify again, we're, we're saved by faith and ultimately we are assured by faith. But in a sense, it kind of kicks the can down the road because how do I know I have real faith? If there's such a thing as false faith, how do you tell the difference? And that's, that's really the question we're going to ask here. And now we have a situation like those $100 bills. We, we want the real thing, but counterfeits abound. Some look real close, but they're still fake so what does real faith look like? What are the distinguishing marks of true saving faith? And scripture has a lot to say about that. Like the $100 bill, God has designed true faith to come with certain distinguishing marks. And the presence of these marks together would indicate you seem to have the real thing, not a counterfeit. And as you learn these marks, you can examine yourself. Does your faith resemble the real thing or not? This is how you gain the assurance of your faith, by which you gain the assurance of your salvation. That's what we're after. So that's our goal this morning. We're going to study the positive side of assurance just to try and give you a basic, helpful way to examine the reality of your faith. And that's how you can live in confidence that you possess eternal life. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you this morning four means of true assurance. Four means of true assurance. By no means exhaustive or comprehensive, because we're limiting this to just one message. But we're going to try and focus biblically on some of the strongest signs of living faith. And so first, number one, you can look for love. Look for love. And open your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. Since we don't have time for an exhaustive study on assurance, we're just going to camp out in 1 John. It's a short epistle, but it was written specifically to address the assurance of salvation. John states this in the purpose of his letter, which comes in chapter 5, verse 13. Speaking of all he said, he said, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not writing that they can have eternal life. They know the gospel. They already believe the Son of God. He's writing that they may know that they have eternal life, i.e. assurance. He wants them to know they possess eternal life. It's possible. How? How can you know? Well, throughout his letter, per his purpose, John presents several tests of faith. And we're going to sample a few of those tests. And one of the biggest tests is the test of love. Salvation involves an inner transformation, a new birth. In the Old Testament, it was described as a heart circumcision. God is taking out your heart of stone, giving you a living new heart of flesh. And one of the characteristics of this new heart is love, a love for God, this genuine, real love for God. Romans 1.30 describes the lost as haters of God. Their hearts are inclined away from God in their sin, in their rebellion. We all once were the same way. Now, look, many unbelievers will claim they love God, but biblically, they don't. Right? They've not repented of their sins. They've not turned to Christ. They're still living in rebellion. That is the opposite of love to God. It's only when one comes to faith via the new, new birth that he or she is given the capacity, a heart that can and will love God. That's when you can say, like Psalm 42, 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That type of love for God is it's hard to fake. And it certainly is a distinctive characteristic of a living faith. It's a love for God. And that love for God is always going to go through love for his son Christ. Is something John says in 1 John 5:1. He says whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. John makes love for God and love for Christ signs that we have truly been born of God. But John takes it even further because you might ask, well, how do I know whether or not I really have this love for God? I mean, are we just talking feelings here? The loss can be moved to emotion. But John shows us how we can tell if our love for God is real and that it's going to show itself in our love for one another. So I want to show you how John makes a huge deal out of love for the brethren As a a sign of real faith. Love for the brethren. First John 2, if you're there, look at verse 9. He says, The one who says he is in the light, and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So here's this person, verse 9. He makes a claim. He claims he is in the light. This goes back to chapter 1, verse 5, where God is light. This person claims to know the holy and true God. But contrary to his claim, the characteristic of his life is hatred. He hates his brother. It says, hates being a present, active parsipal, not envisioning like a one-time stumble into hatred, but this is a pattern of life without change. This person is filled with hatred. And by this lack of love, John says he proves that his claim to be in the light is false. He's still in the darkness. And on the flip side, the one who loves his brother, same thing, presently, habitually, persistently. He's the one who proves that he is in the light. He walks in the light. It's very easy for John to make loving others such a big test of faith because like Jesus taught, love is the summary of the whole law. I mean, love, it's like the one word essence of what God requires of us. So if you don't have that, if you're missing like the most essential thing, how can you make any claim to new birth? Now, John picks this back up in chapter three, look at chapter three, verse 14, another big section. Look at at this, chapter 3, verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. This is what we're trying to figure out, right? Have I passed out of death into life? Have I? Well, how do you know? He says, because we love the brethren. And if you don't love the brethren, it means you haven't. He says in verse 14, he who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him the opposite of love is hatred if one's heart is still defined by hatred that means you're not dealing with someone who has received life you're dealing with someone who takes life i.e. a murderer someone who's still a murderer at heart and that is not a sign of salvation instead true faith is going to show itself not, not by hatred taking of life, so to speak, but by love laying down of one's life. That's the next verse, verse 16. He says, we know love by this, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How did we receive God's love in the first place? It was through Christ's selfless sacrifice. And this now is the measure of our own love which is so opposite the world. Do you love like this? Like Christ? That's a measurement here. Do you want to know what it looks like in practice for us? How about the next verse, verse 17? He says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Uh, The obvious answer is, it doesn't. Verse 18, little children let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And we can say again, talk is cheap. Is your love cheap? Your love is going to be seen in, in action, meeting needs, sacrificing self for the good of others. That kind of love is visible. You might even call it fruit. And so do you have that the fruit of love on your tree of faith? If so, it leads to assurance. The very next verse, verse 19 here. He says, speaking of this love, verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whenever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is what we're after, confidence before God. Or like he puts it down in chapter 4, verse 17, still talking about love. He says, this is how we may have confidence in the day of judgment. That's like exactly what we're after here. I want confidence in the day of judgment. You can have that confidence, like he says in verse 19, you can assure your heart before him. How? Well, one way is by this test of love. Love for others, it's not a work that saves us, but it is a work that evidences we have been saved. And it's so compelling because love like this, it does not come from the flesh. But the last thing our, our sinful flesh wants to do is selflessly sacrifice ourselves for the good of others and the glory of God. That's the opposite of what the flesh wants. That's a work of the spirit. And if you bear this fruit, John says, you can assure your heart before God and gain confidence. His words. We're just barely scratching the surface here. John actually has so much to say about this test of love. He devotes almost all of chapter four to it, but take it to heart. And you can ask yourself, do you love God? Do you love his son, Christ, who loved you first and gave up himself for you? And then do you show this love in love for others? First John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Now let's move on to a second measure here. Secondly, look for obedience. Look for love. Secondly, look for obedience. This second means of assuring your faith is another huge one. The scripture consistently teaches A lack of obedience is one of the surest signs of false faith. And this is what Jesus taught us back in our original text, Matthew 7, 21, where he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They call him Lord, but that doesn't mean they enter. He says, he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. It's easy to like verbalize Jesus is Lord, but the faith that saves like actually follows him as if he were the lord and jesus depicts this as doing the will of god keeping the commands of god obedience like he said in luke 6:46 to a group of false believers uh, why why do you call me lord lord and do not do what i say that's what he said to them the false believer is one who calls jesus lord But as he said in Matthew 7.23, in reality, he practices lawlessness. The picture of his life is one who's practicing living in lawlessness. They still live in the darkness. As John would say, there's no fruit on the tree. Speaking of fruit, do you remember, didn't Jesus say earlier in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruit. You can't see a person's heart. You can't tell if saving faith resides within them. Just like you can't see the roots of a tree, but you can see the fruit. And like Jesus taught, a good tree will bear good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. You will know them by their fruits, he says twice. Which is why he can say elsewhere, a huge verse, John fifteen eight, likewise teaching on fruit and the true and the false believer. He says in John fifteen eight, My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, And so prove to be my disciples. That's not how you become a disciple, faith alone. But one way you prove it, you bear much fruit. Remember, we're asking here, like, is my faith real? Do I have true faith? Well, do you obey God? Do you bear fruit? Do you produce good works? That's a pretty strong sign. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we're saved by grace through faith, apart from the works of the law, no no part of the equation of salvation. But verse 10 in Ephesians 2, we're saved for good works. The one who is transformed by faith, they're going to start living out that faith and they will produce a transformed life, fruit, works. James makes a huge point of this in his epistle. Briefly, James 2.14, James asks, he says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, But he has no works. Can that faith save him? That's the exact same question we're asking. This is a huge point. James is not saying, can faith save him? James knows, of course, faith can save. Only faith can save. But his question more precisely is, can that faith save him? What faith? The type of faith that produces no works, that results in no changed life. Can that type of faith save? The answer is no. No. That's not living faith. That's a dead, phony, counterfeit faith. But he also goes on to argue that the opposite is true. As you produce works by faith, you're demonstrating your justification and you gain assurance. And James 2 is a massive chapter on that. But we're trying to camp out in 1 John. So let me show you some verses from John where he makes a big deal out of the test of obedience. Still in chapter 2, 1 John 2. And back up to verse 3. I don't think it gets any clearer than this one verse, 1 John 2, 3, the test of obedience. He says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. What's he saying? Now, he's not saying by this, we come to know him if we keep his commandments. If he said that, he's teaching salvation by works. We do not come to know the Lord by keeping the commands. But that's not what he says, though. He says, by this, we know that we have come to know him. He's talking assurance. How do you know you're really saved? And John says, if we keep his commandments, present tense, characteristic obedience. Verse four, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So here's another person making another claim. The claim is, I have come to know him. Pretty obvious claim of salvation. But this person does not keep the commandments. So what's the conclusion? Should be pretty obvious. John affirms this person is a liar. How are they a liar? They're lying in their claim to know God. They don't know God, proven that they don't follow him. The truth is not in him, John says. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Here it is again. This is how we know that we're in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So John says it again. How do you know if you're in Jesus? Which is Christ's own language of salvation, being in Christ, abiding in Christ. Well, you you know, by walking in the same manner as he walked, this is clear, this is explicit, this is repeated. A pattern of obedience is a very strong distinguishing mark of true faith. True faith is going to, by definition, show up eventually in obedience now John has a lot more to say that the whole first half of chapter three is about the test of obedience. But for the sake of time, look at his summary of it all. Verse 10, 1 John chapter three, look at verse 10, where he, he concludes his subpoint. He says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. And so John says, you know, telling sheep apart from goats, it's actually pretty obvious. And he appeals to the tests of love and obedience. But here you see that the practice of righteousness, that's what makes it obvious. Verse nine, but verse before he says, no one who is born of God practices sin. Now this is a a good place to pause for a qualification in all these verses, John does not have in mind perfection, sinlessness. All believers retain the flesh with his corrupt desires, which means even as believers, we still sin. But unchecked sin and rebellion against the will of God is no longer going to be the, the characteristic pattern of their life. They may stumble, but they have the spirit. They will bear the fruit of the spirit. They will wage war against the flesh. They will pursue obedience to the will of God. And they'll do so because they want to. It's also a good place to add that this obedience we're talking about must be rightly motivated to even count. It must come from a heart of joy, not obligation. Even with this test of obedience, you have to be discerning. It's very possible to be like the Pharisees who outwardly obeyed God a bunch. But they did so for all the wrong reasons. They obeyed out of a self righteousness, really a love for self, not a love for God. They had it all backward, but we need to get it straight. Why do we obey God? 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. He says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That's how you show God love. You keep his commandments, but his commandments, they're not burdensome. Not anymore. That's an excellent internal question to ask yourself as you examine yourself. Is following Christ and living like a Christian, is that a burden to you or a blessing? And is it a a joy or a duty? Only you can answer that question in your heart of hearts. do Do you really love Christ and his ways? You are happy to walk in his ways despite the flesh. Or have you... Have you gotten onto his way? Have you been attracted to his way for some other reason? True faith will obey the commands of God with a willing, joyful heart. And all the times you don't do that, when you you disobey, you stumble. True faith will also always lead a person to repentance. And that's the next means of assurance. Number three, look for repentance. Look for repentance. Repentance is such a big deal because it's merely the opposite side of faith. The other side of the coin of faith. They always go together. Remember really what we're asking. Do I have real living, saving faith? Am I truly clinging to Christ alone? Part of that equation though is repentance. Have I really abandoned my sin and forsaken self-will? You can't walk in two directions at the same time. To follow Christ means you no longer are following your sin. And repentance, then, is the expression of, of turning away from sin. Repentance is meant to be living, active, and ongoing, just like faith is meant to be living, active, and ongoing. Now, to clarify, after we're justified, we're, we're fully forgiven. And so even as we sin, it's not like we're unsaved or unforgiven. We don't need to be re-justified. But scripture teaches, ongoing repentance will be the response of a new heart that hates sin. Just like ongoing faith is the response of a new heart that loves righteousness. Precisely because we've been transformed by faith. Now we love God. Now we hate sin. As often as we stumble in the way of Christ... We will be grieved. You should no longer be able to sin cavalierly—at least not for long. As you come to an awareness, I've been deceived here, and uh, your eyes open up. I've I've stumbled into sin uh, the opposite way of Christ. It should uh, lead to a brokenness, a conviction, and that's going to lead the believer to then you know, forsake that sin and return to the way of Christ. In other words, of saying repent. This is the difference between King Saul and King David. Between Judas and Peter, they all sinned in major ways. But the true believers repent. Now back to 1 John. John shows us the right and wrong responses to sin, to ongoing sin, even in the life of a believer. Go back to chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We will start in verse 5. After his introduction. It says, 1 John 1, five. this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. He's going to pick up this light metaphor, using it to speak of God's moral perfection, his holiness. Verse 6, here's a claim. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So here again, John does this all the time. He he postulates this person making a claim. What's the claim? Here's a claim to have fellowship with the God, the God who is light. I have fellowship with him. But this person in their life is walking in darkness. Jesus would say practicing lawlessness. So this is walk is John's metaphor. He uses often for how you live. It's in the present tense again, This person that is living in darkness, ongoing, unchecked sin in their life. And so what's John's evaluation? Same thing. He says he's a liar. How is he a liar? He's lying in his claim to have fellowship with the God who is light. He does not have fellowship with God. He does not practice the truth. If your spiritual zip code is still in the domain of darkness, that's a bad sign. But on the other side, verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the other side here. Do you walk in the light? Do you practice righteousness? Do you follow Jesus? If so, that that is evidence of your fellowship and your cleansing. And even more, you gain assurance that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin, even ongoing sin. John knows that even as believers, we still sin. How we respond to ongoing sin says a lot about us. And at first, he's going to expose the wrong response to sin. That's verses 8 and 10, a little sandwich here. Verse 8, verse 10. He says in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Similar, verse 10 if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The wrong response is to deny sin in our lives. Some, like those in verse eight, deny the fact that they're sinners. Others, like those in verse 10, deny the fact that they have sinned. Both denials are wrong though. This is the response of the proud, the self-righteous, the deceived. This is not the response of the poor in spirit and the humble. Both make God out to be a liar and prove themselves liars as they contradict his word. And so the wrong response to ongoing sin as a believer is to deny it, to cover it up. The right response is to confess it. That's verse nine. He says in the middle, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess is homologeo in the Greek. It means to say the same thing. You're coming to agree with God about your sin, that you did the deed, you were deceived, you were wrong, you were unholy. But now it grieves you, so you forsake it, and you're returning to him and his ways of righteousness, all of which you express in prayer. And as you confess, you're encouraged to know God promises to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is talking about the relational reconciliation Jesus provides as our sin hinders our fellowship with God. <clears throat> but as I've said before, if, if in pride you deny your sin and cover it up, God will be sure to uncover it in judgment. But if in humility you uncover your sin and confess it, he will be sure to cover it in mercy. Denying sin, John says, is a sign that the truth is not in you. But confessing sin is evidence of the Holy Spirit's indwelling convicting work. One of the jobs of the Spirit to convict of sin. Now, as we observed last week from Hebrews 12, God is not going to allow his true children to persist in sin and rebellion for very long. And he's holy. He wants them to be like him. And so either through internal conviction or sometimes external discipline, He's going to lead them to repentance. True believers, they may sin in great ways, like King David. But at some point, repentance is going to enter the equation. They will turn and return. But the false believer will not. That's a big sign. I mean, per the church discipline process the Lord himself laid out in Matthew 18, is that not the telltale sign of the one who's not truly saved? They're in sin, but they persistently perpetually refuse to repent. That is the one who should have no assurance of salvation. Now, we need to finish up. Number four, look for endurance. Not an exhaustive list here, but I think four big ones. Number four, look for endurance. Specifically, we're talking about endurance amidst suffering for the faith. Endurance, really talking about when you're suffering for the faith. And that greatly contributes the assurance of your faith all throughout history people have been faced with the question like is what i have real or fake is this a real hundred dollar bill or a counterfeit is, it, is this a real diamond or a cubic zirconia is this real gold or fool's gold but you know, the thing is there there are tests for everything and one useful test for metals is fire do you know the melting point of real gold It's about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Do you know the melting point of pyrite or fool's gold? It's only 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you really, really want to tell the difference, just try fire. You'll find out pretty quick. And it's not all that different when it comes to true and false faith. True faith will endure great suffering for Christ. False faith will not. It's going to melt away. Now, this this one here, number four, this is not a test we administer to ourselves. We receive this test of suffering endurance in God's providence, in his timing. But how your faith responds to suffering is quite telling one way or another. Think back to the parable of the soils. How Jesus himself illustrated the false believer versus the true believer. The false believer, he likens to one like seeds sown on rocky soil. This person, he says, hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. For various reasons that he likes what he hears about the message of salvation. He's happy to add Jesus to his life. Sure. But he's not sold out to Jesus. He's not really submitted his life to Christ as his Lord. Let's not get radical here. He never counted the cost of discipleship. Eventually he finds out he is persecuted for his supposed faith in Christ. And so what happens at that point? What Jesus says is Matthew 13, 21 in the parable. He says, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So that the fire ramps up. He starts taking heat for his supposed faith in Christ, but it gets way too hot. His faith, like that fool's gold, it just melts. It's gone. He falls away. And then it becomes painfully obvious he was a false believer. Because it's part of the, the very essence of true faith to endure. It's a defining characteristic of true faith to endure to the end. Even amidst suffering. The true believer will persevere in the faith no matter what. They can lose their health, their wealth, even their family. All of which is tragic but that's not going to make them abandon Christ. Whatever the hardship or suffering, they're going to cling to Christ even more. Why? Well, it's just in the nature of true saving faith to do so. And so as you suffer, especially as you suffer for Christ, yet you endure, you're gaining some of the greatest assurance possible that your faith is real. Like your allegiance to Christ, you seem to be the real deal. And there's many verses that teach that God designs suffering to strengthen and verify the faith of his people, which leads them to great assurance. Now we're picking on John, but I'm going to have to go to Peter here because he says it succinctly and so powerfully. You can just listen. First Peter 1, 6 through 7. First Peter 1, 6. He says to his people, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get it straight. God saves us through faith and it is our faith. That ultimately assures us of salvation. Our faith is what gives us a living hope of heaven. And God will use our faith to protect us, to preserve us. God will be very careful to guard our faith, but also to grow our faith. He wants us to have not just a little faith, but great faith. It's made to grow. One of the ways, though, he can grow our faith, test it, refine it, is through fire. Fiery trials, as Peter would say. But the outcome... For the real believer who will endure on the other side of that fiery trial is a stronger, purer faith and the greater assurance that comes with a stronger, purer faith. Much of assurance comes over time and is proven over time. And really, it's only a matter of time before you suffer as a Christian. But as you meet that suffering with patience and with endurance, you're bearing witness. You really are hoping in Christ alone you're showing off a key distinguishing mark of living faith. And as you persevere, you, you should grow in hope and trust, and you should be assured your faith in him is real. And the more we suffer, the more we realize Christ and our faith in him, it's really all that's real. And so I want you to consider this morning these four big means of true assurance, assurance of faith, love, obedience, repentance, endurance, there are many more, but just as with that authentic $100 bill, these are some of the defining characteristics of what authentic faith looks like. And those with a counterfeit faith, they're going to fall short somewhere or another. They're going to lack these signs. But Those with true faith, they're going to bear this fruit. And so you're asking yourself, do you find this type of fruit on your tree? And just to flesh this out by way of an example here, Just think on the difference between Peter and Judas. Both of whom call themselves identified as disciples of Jesus. Like the literal disciples of Jesus. Both of whom would have happily said Jesus is Lord, Lord. One was a true believer. One was false. Judas was immersed in a culture of discipleship. He appeared outwardly obedient. But we know as for self-serving reasons, he had a heart of greed. And he was attracted to Jesus as the Messiah, only insofar as it furthered furthered himself, his own position in this coming political kingdom, when Jesus overthrew the Romans, he believed. Of course, when he finally understood Jesus was going to be a crucified Messiah, and he's promising a cross for his disciples, this is not what Judas signed up for. So to further serve self, he betrayed Jesus, and that sin grieved him. But his heart was hardened. He did not repent. And losing all hope, he committed suicide. But now consider Peter. Peter was by no means perfect. His many stumbles are recorded for all time in the gospels. But he still had a deep, passionate love for Christ. He had a loyalty to Christ. Peter was the one who was willing to step out in faith and walk on water to go to Jesus. And when everyone else was... Leaving Jesus because of his hard sayings, Peter is the one who said, that, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter himself was tested and sifted, and he fell big time, denying the Lord three times. But his faith did not fail, it got real weak, but it didn't fail. Proven by the fact that he repented and being restored, his faith actually became stronger. And we go on to give his entire life to serve the Lord and his people. So, which of these two looks like the picture of true saving faith? It's not hard to see. I'm just, just calling Jesus Lord doesn't cut it, as we've learned. Last week, relying on a conversion experience, religious culture, religious heritage, material prosperity, or selective obedience. None of that cuts it. So we learned last week. But when you find love, obedience, repentance, endurance, you're finding the hallmarks of true faith. And wherever you find true faith, well, that's where you find the assurance of salvation. You're gaining that confidence. Now, as a final word, we need one last clarification on the practical side of things. Because if you take these signs of true faith and you misapply them, and self-evaluation, you might never find the assurance of salvation. And one way you can misapply what we studied this morning is by mistakenly making your performance the ultimate foundation of assurance. We need to clarify that. That would be a problem because, I mean, are you perfect? Is your performance perfect? No. Therefore, you can never have full assurance. I mean, do, do you love others perfectly? Do you obey perfectly? Do you even repent and endure perfectly? No. You might find, you know, some resemblance between your life and all the signs of faith we studied this morning, but sometimes you don't love others as you should. You don't obey as you should. And if your assurance is fundamentally based on your performance, well, then you'll never have real assurance. Is our assurance meant to rise and fall daily with our performance? It's like, today out was excellent. I was really walking the walk. If I die tonight, I'm like 99% sure I would go to heaven. (laughs) Yesterday, it's a different story. Not so much. I really tolerated a lot of sin. It's not how it meant, it's meant to work. So we need this final clarification. Look, we started with faith and we need to end with faith. Because as we said, faith itself is that ultimate foundation of the assurance of our salvation. We're saved through Jesus. He's the perfect savior. His is the perfect work. He had the perfect life. Our assurance comes as we abide in him, cling to him and rest after that in God's promises to us through him. God says he will save forever those who believe in his son. He says, uh, he who began a good work in you will perfect it, complete it in the day of salvation. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so our assurance, it, it, it's found in God, his word, his works, his character, his promises, all of which we cling to by faith. Now, because of the reality of false faith, we've learned it. it's only wise and right to examine ourselves. We're commanded to do so. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Have I been deceived? Do I have a, one of those counterfeit faiths? This is where you take what we learned this morning, these means of assurance, of testing your faith. Do you have love and obedience, repentance, endurance? You examine yourself. And as you do so, that's how you would gain the assurance of your faith that my faith appears to be alive. That faith itself is the real ground of the assurance of your salvation. But even as you examine yourself, what are you looking for? You're looking for, signs of life. The test is not whether you whether or not you are a completely mature, perfect fruit bearing tree. You won't be until the kingdom, but the test is whether or not you're a living tree. That's what we're looking for. Are you an alive tree or a dead tree? And so what are the signs of life? It's not completion, not perfection, but are you growing? Are you bearing fruit? That's something good trees, living trees do. You might be a sapling. You're a brand new believer. Maybe you're an old believer with stunted growth because you've been under poor teaching for a long time. Maybe you're just plain immature. But as and if and as you see signs of life, you can have assurance. My faith, though, my faith and trust in Christ is real. And at that point, your assurance of salvation will be as strong as your faith. At that point, though, you're meant to circle back around to the promises of God Just cling to them tighter. Because at the end of the day, both salvation and assurance, they're going to be irrevocably tied to faith. We're saved and we're assured just by abiding in Jesus, the head. And he's our only hope. So make sure, even after all we've studied, that your hope is in Christ. Your faith is in Christ. You're abiding in him. And as you abide in him, you gain that ultimate confidence. I think it's only fitting to let John have the final word, whereas he reminds us in first John two twenty-eight, he says, affectionately, now, little children, abide in him, Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. So let's not forget now and always to abide in Christ by faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we exalt you this morning together. The body of your people, under your word, your word given to us for everything we need for life and godliness, that includes the knowledge of our salvation. We praise you for revealing the gospel uh, only by the sinless Savior who came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. Only by his life, his righteousness, his atoning work, can we be saved. You've given us the knowledge of the gospel in the word, uh, the means of new birth. And it's by faith in him alone. We are to turn from our wicked ways and turn to him, clinging to him. And he promises to forgive, to make alive, to save. And for any here who have not done so, open their eyes this morning. Today can be the, not, uh, the day of their salvation. And thereafter, Lord, you, you've also revealed to us how we might know that we have received this gift. We don't want to be deceived. It's very possible. And so we ask for a spirit of wisdom and grace and knowledge to to Do what you tell us to do. Examine and test ourselves. We want to be found true gold. And as you refine us, pure gold, 24-karat gold, not fake fool's gold. And so uh, help us all to, to be convicted to graciously, carefully examine ourselves, examine our faith. Just what are we believing in? What are we trusting in? What have we confessed? How does it show up in our lives? Move us to a real love and obedience. Repentance when we fall short, and endurance through whatever comes. And by this, we can be assured our our trust in Christ is real, our new birth is real, and we can gain assurance of salvation. We're meant to live in confidence and the peace and the daily joy, knowing that it is well with our soul. If we were to die today, we would be with the Lord in paradise. And I pray you grant us the gift of assurance as we just cling to Christ. We must abide in him. Help us to set our eyes on him today, every day, and never lose sight of our Savior. It is in his name we pray. Amen.